Hello and welcome to the Oleaster Podcast, the audible version of articles on oleaster.org. I'm Devin Phillips, the author and your narrator. Without further ado, let's dive in. Hospitality and Resurrection, part two of the series, Hospitality and Revival. This recording is part of a series on hospitality and revival found on oleaster.org. You can read part one there, Invisible Barriers and the Hospitality of God. And you can also listen to the recording on Substack or on the oleaster.org website. Here's Hospitality and Resurrection. Walk with me on the dusty, sunlit, ancient, garbage-strewn streets of a little town in Jordan called Madaba. For two years, this was my home. In the hustle and bustle of everyday activity, turn right at the jasmine tree to take the shortcut to Arabic class. Hearing a voice from above call to you seemed completely normal. Not a heavenly voice, but rather a voice of a neighbor living on the third floor of your building. Come over for some tea. Now, it doesn't matter if you've never met the owner of the voice before, don't speak the same language, or are on your way to the fruit store to make important purchases. At this moment, an offer of hospitality has been extended, and it would be perfectly normal for you to accept, turn out of your way, and climb the stairs to the open apartment door. Sweets and tea are on the table, and curious warm eyes are ready to transform you from stranger to friend. After this scenario had played out several times, I confided in a Jordanian acquaintance that this situation was almost unthinkable to Americans. She looked at me sadly, not surprised. Our culture is not high trust, I tried to explain. People move around, and very few have deep roots in their community. To go into a strange home is too great a risk. You're asking to be murdered. She considered my sociological analysis and summarized without accusation. You're afraid. Much of the infrastructure and societal norms that support a robust and widespread culture of hospitality have disappeared in the West. Pockets remain, but our memory of this way of drawing in the stranger has become to many a distant memory, an ideal found only in storybooks and history class. We could hear of some contemporary, albeit exotic, examples, though. For instance, in far-off Afghanistan, the code of honor among the Pashtun people requires that a household fight and die to the last man to protect a guest in their home. In fact, the safest place to be if you've offended is in the household of your enemy. There you are safe from all retribution since hospitality supersedes revenge. This Pashtunwali, however, seems as far removed from reality to the average Westerner as 1,001 nights. Or perhaps you could look to the Bedouin peoples, nomadic tribes that live in the deserts of the Levant. Once, while hiking in the Negev, I nervously asked my friend what her plan was for the rapidly approaching nightfall when, as far as the eye could see, were tall brown mountains and an empty path. We just need to find some Bedouins, she assured me. I didn't understand what she meant, until we saw the tent in the twilight, with its black goat hair covering stretched over many poles. One side of the tent is open to signify the welcome of guests. When we approached the tent, we were given tea steeped with sage and shown a corner where we could sleep. That Bedouin tent, which saved me from spending a freezing night in the open desert, is the picture I used to imagine the tent of Abraham, 
pitched in the shade of the oaks of Mamre. Shading his old eyes, Abraham sees three men appear before the entrance of his tent. If anyone could be excused from offering hospitality at that moment, then surely Abraham qualified. Still recovering from his recent circumcision, he could have conceivably entertained thoughts of letting the strangers pass by. It was also the hottest part of the day, and time for a nap. Not a time to be doing the hard work of hosting. None of these extenuating circumstances deterred Abraham. Instead, he rushes over to greet the three travelers. Fully prostrating himself before them, he urges them to stop, be refreshed, and eat with him. When the travelers agree to Abraham's suggestion, he immediately springs into action. His wife Sarah is recruited to make good bread with fine ground flour. Abraham then runs over to his herd to select a choice calf for slaughter. Only the best veal dinner will do for the guests. Abraham sets a meal of cheese, milk, beef, and bread before the travelers, and they all eat together under the oak branches. Though Abraham received his guests with honor and generosity, little did he know that he was entertaining angels and the Lord himself. The dinner conversation soon revealed the visitor's divine nature, however. After questioning the whereabouts of Abraham's wife, Sarah, the Lord said, About this time next year, I will return to you, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Sarah, well past her childbearing years, overheard this declaration from the other side of the tent flap and laughed. The pain and shame of decades had settled into a resigned hopelessness that the promises of a stranger could not touch. The Lord, who I imagine spoke a bit louder for the eavesdropping Sarah's benefit, then said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, that is, Moed, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. Sarah, in her embarrassment, denied laughing, but the Lord knew who would have the last laugh. Between her laughter and the promised visitation in the coming year, Sarah let go of her unbelief and considered God able and faithful to do as he said. God visited Sarah at the appointed time, and she conceived and bore a son. Abraham names the boy Isaac, meaning he laughs, a brilliant inside joke between the two elderly and overjoyed parents and their promise-keeping God. There are layers upon layers of miracles in this story. What started with the cutting of the circumcision covenant progressed into hosting God himself, which then moved into a miraculous life being birthed from a father whose worn-out body was as good as dead, and a mother who was completely barren even during her childbearing years. Barrenness, death, and despair had been turned on their heads into new life, a son of promise. If we think that this catalyst of hospitality is unique to the story of Abraham's lunch with the Lord, we merely have to continue the journey with the two angels to their next appointment in Sodom. As the angels approached the city, Lot, sitting by the city gate, spotted the travelers. He bowed his face down to the ground, greeting the two strangers as his uncle Abraham had done. Lot similarly implored the men to stay at his house. But the script slightly deviates here, and the travelers refuse the offer, saying they will remain in the town square instead. But Lot urged them strongly, and they went with him. Lot set a feast with unleavened bread, matzah, 
before them, and they ate. But before the two guests could fall asleep, every man living in Sodom gathered outside Lot's house. They pounded on the house door, demanding Lot revoke the protection of his hospitality, and sent his guests outside to be brutally gang-raped by the crowd. Rather than send the men out of his house, Lot went outside himself, closing the door firmly behind him. If there was the remotest chance that Lot could reason with the violent mob, he was taking it and putting his safety on the line. Lot's subsequent appeal to the men is massively controversial to biblical readers today. My brothers, do not act so wickedly, Lot begged the men of Sodom. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. How could Lot contemplate sacrificing his virgin daughters to the lecherous throng? The horrifying story of the Levite and his concubine in Judges 19 is an obvious parallel, and the callousness of father and husband for the women in their care is acutely distressing. Without excusing or justifying their actions, let us add some context that might help us understand Lot's reasoning, even if we disagree with his strategy from the comfortable distance of four millennia. First, we see that Lot has taken a great deal of personal risk by standing between the crowd and his household, which is much more than can be said for the Levite in Judges 19. Second, one of the most precious family resources in the ancient Near Eastern agricultural community was the virginity of its daughters. Unmoneyed lineages, bride prices, honor, and stability of clans were all factors closely tied to the purity of their women. Just as the strength of a tribe's son was a collective resource, so too was the fertility of its daughters. Lot's sacrifice of his daughters was not so much about the young women being expendable, but that he valued the protection of guests so highly that he would even sacrifice his family's precious possessions before the relative strangers under the shelter of his roof. Perhaps the Pashtunwali, the code of honor that dictates death before inhospitality, might be a better framework to view Lot's offer. Whatever the reasoning behind Lot's suggestion, it quickly becomes a moot point. Hearing Lot judge their actions as wicked, the men work themselves into a frenzy. Shouting threats, they push Lot into the door of his house, using him as a makeshift battering ram to break down the entryway. At this point, the angels kick into gear. They reach out and pull Lot inside and strike the attacking mob with blindness so that they can't find the door. The two then warn Lot, If you have anyone in your family that you want to be saved from the wrath to come, bring them out of Sodom, for we are about to destroy it. Lot tried to convince his future son-in-laws to flee, but they laughed at him, thinking that he was playing some elaborate joke and stayed where they were. When the day dawned, the angels told Lot that the time had run out and that he, his wife, and his daughters must leave immediately. Lot hesitated until the frustrated angels had to drag him and his family members by the hand to lead them outside the city. The household of Lot was given this last instruction, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. The family quickly made their way to a nearby town of Zoar, and their arrival coincided with the destruction of Sodom. Sulfur and fire from the Lord rained down on the inhabitants of the doomed valley. Lot's wife, disregarding the instruction of the angels, looked back 
and turned into a pillar of salt. Because of Sodom and the subsequent troubling events in Lot's story, modern eyes often view him as an ambiguous character, a man who escaped wrath purely by God's grace and Abraham's intercession, and not as a concession to his righteousness or hospitality. No doubt, God's mercy is central to the story. But we have an interesting commentary from the epistles and the gospels that can challenge this initial reading. For instance, in 2 Peter 2, 7-10, Lot is called righteous three times and contrasted with the abject wickedness of the people surrounding him. What is the principle Peter extracts from Sodom's story? The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Abraham's hospitality led to the announcement of miraculous life from death. Lot's hospitality led to his preservation on the day of judgment. Luke also records a compelling commentary on Sodom. Jesus, when sending out the 72 disciples to preach the gospel of the kingdom, gave them instructions that used hospitality as a litmus test to find those receptive to the gospel message. Eating and drinking are central to their evangelism. Whatever house you enter, first say, Peace be to this house, and if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the sick in it and say to them, The kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, Even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Luke 10, verses 5 through 12. Receiving Jesus' messengers with hospitality led to healing the town's sick. This sign pointed to the coming kingdom of God, where the righteous dead will be resurrected and death and sickness will be no more. Not receiving Jesus' messengers with hospitality incurred an equally apocalyptic judgment. Dusty feet that gracious hosts should have washed will bear witness against that town on the last day, and they will suffer a punishment worse than Sodom. If we have failed at this point to see the immense importance of hospitality in the life of Abraham and Lot, not only as a righteous act but as an apocalyptic sign, We cannot fail to miss this theme later in history in the lives of two women who hosted Elijah and Elisha. In 1 Kings 17, we find Israel in a drought that can only be broken by the word of the prophet Elijah. After announcing this judgment to King Ahab, Elijah first takes shelter by a brook east of the Jordan River, but soon the brook dries up. The Lord then tells Elijah to go to the town of Zarephath because he has commanded a woman there to feed Elijah. When Elijah reaches the village, he sees a widow gathering sticks. Elijah, the rain withholder himself, rather audaciously asks her for water. As the widow turns to fetch the water for him, Elijah adds to his request, would she bring him a little bit of bread as well? At this point, the widow admits that all she has 
are a handful of flour and a little oil. Before the prophet's interruption, her plan was to make one last bit of bread for her and her son, and after this final meal, she knew nothing was left for her and her son but starvation and death. Elijah assures her that the Lord has declared that her flour will not run out, nor will her oil run dry until the terrible drought is over. With this declaration, he sends her to make him bread. The widow of Zarephath as Elijah asks, and just as the Lord promised, her food miraculously multiplies. This divine provision to the woman who trusted the word of the Lord as she baked what could have been her last supper sustained her family and the prophet. But that was not the end of her reward. Not long after this, the widow's son became severely ill and stopped breathing. The widow asked the prophet if her son's death was because of her sin, as the suddenness and intensity of his sickness seemed to be divine judgment. Rather than answer the distraught mother's question, Elijah asked her for her son. He brought the limp little body to his upstairs room in the house, laid him down on the bed, and interceded over the boy. O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I sojourn by killing her son? He stretched himself over the boy three times, praying, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord heard Elijah's prayer, and the child began to breathe again, and he lived. As an act of faith, the widow's hospitality saved herself and others from starvation and led to her son's resurrection. She saw the mighty acts of God, and it established an unshakable confidence in the word of the Lord as truth. A very similar story plays out in the life of the prophet Elisha. This time, however, the woman is wealthy and has a living husband. She notices that Elisha, the prophet, has come to her town of Shunem, and she urges him to eat food. Whenever he passed by, she made sure that he was fed. When she realized that Shunem would be a regular stop on Elisha's travels, she collaborated with her husband to set up a permanent room for Elisha in their house and furnished it with a bed, table, chair, and lamp. A very comfortable setup for the prophet, indeed. This act of kindness greatly ministered to Elisha. As he was resting in the guest room of the Shunammite woman, he called her and asked her if there was any service he could do for her. Did she want a word spoken on her behalf to the king or the commander of the army? These favors she humbly declined and left the prophet to ponder what other possible rewards he could give. At this point, Elisha's servant points out that the woman is childless and her husband is old. Perfect. Elisha calls the woman back and says, At this season, Moed, appointed time, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. Sarah had laughed at such a prospect, but the Shunammite denied it, saying, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Despite her unbelief, the woman held her son in her arms the following spring. Years later, this boy was out in the fields with his father, when he had a sudden and painful headache. The father told his workers to bring the boy back to his mother. She held him on her lap as he slowly slipped away and died. She laid the boy's body on the bed in the prophet's guest room and closed the door. She saddled the donkey and quickly made her way to Mount Carmel, where Elisha was based, a journey of more than 20 miles. 
Elisha saw the woman approaching from far off and sent his servant to ask her if all was well with her and her family. She answered that all was well, presumably not wishing to speak about her sorrow with anyone but the prophet himself. When she reached Elisha, the Shunammite caught hold of his feet and wept. The servant was about to push her back, but Elisha said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. The woman then said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? Elisha, perceiving that something had happened to the boy, immediately sent his servant with his staff to check on the child. Interestingly, Elisha's instruction to his servant are closely echoed by Jesus in his instructions to the disciples in Luke 10, 4. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply. Elisha then adds, Lay my staff on the face of the child. The bereft mother remained with the prophet, and the servant made the trek back to Shunem. He finds the boy in the guest room and lays Elisha's staff on the boy's face as instructed, but there are no signs of life. The servant then returns to Mount Carmel with the sad news. The child has not awakened. At this point, Elisha, the woman, and his servant all travel to Shunem. Elisha found the child lying on his bed. He closed the door to his room and began to pray. Just like his predecessor, Elijah, he stretched himself over the boy. Warmth returned to the body, but not life. Elisha paced the house, returning to his room, and stretched himself over the boy in intercession again. This time, the boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. So the prophet returned the resurrected promised son to his mother, and the word of the Lord was proved doubly true, first in the giving of a son, and second in the son's restoration. In the lives of Abraham, Sarah, the widow of Zarephath, and the Shunammite woman, hospitality is a crucial element in their resurrection stories. Abraham and Sarah received the Lord and angels in disguise, and the women received Elijah, Elisha, and the word of the Lord. Lot's hospitality saved him and his daughters from the wrath poured out on Sodom. His testimony not only bore witness against the wickedness of that city, but served as an apocalyptic warning to future cities that proved inhospitable to the Lord's messengers. If we've been tempted to relegate hospitality to a minor gift, a mere personality trait, or something other cultures practice, we've missed something epic and fundamental about this virtue in the life of every believer. The gospel preached in hospitality was affirmed by signs and wonders, where God opened barren wombs, gives sons, raises the dead. To align ourselves with a hospitable God means that we also will practice hospitality, and in so doing, we powerfully proclaim God's coming kingdom. But perhaps here you might object. Many aspects of the patriarchs and prophets' histories are descriptive rather than prescriptive. Maybe I have overstated the universal applicability and call to hospitality for Christians. But as we look at the life and ministry of Jesus, this position will become harder and harder to sustain. Stay tuned for the next installment in the Hospitality and Revival series, The Son of Man King Eating and Drinking, where we will explore Jesus' use of hospitality in His ministry. Recommended Resources Articles Abraham and Lot's Bedouin-style hospitality by Dr. Clinton Bailey. Books. 
Saved by Faith and Hospitality by Joshua W. Jip. Who Ate Lunch with Abraham by Asher Intrader. This has been a recording of Hospitality and Resurrection from oleaster.org. All Bible quotations are from the English Standard Version, unless otherwise specified. If you enjoyed listening, please feel free to read or listen to other articles at oleaster.org, receive new content in your inbox by subscribing to the Substack, or follow on X or Instagram at oleasterbranch. Any and all feedback to this and other articles is welcome. If you have a question, comment, or correction, please feel free to email contact at oleaster.org. The music in this episode is Zion Train by Alexandra Simeonov. Thanks for listening. Until next time, Maranatha.